time of mild transitions in our church. Uh, this week we resumed our regular Sunday school studies, and today we are resuming our study through 1 Corinthians, the letter that we left off back in the spring. We spent some time studying Jesus' upper room discourse from the Gospel of John, and we've already covered, for those of you who are jumping in now in the middle, we've already covered a lot of space in 1 Corinthians. Uh, maybe a little bit of a very brief review. One way to uh, think of the letter, of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, is a problem letter to a problem church. Paul spent 18 months in Corinth uh, teaching and leading the church, and then as he went elsewhere, uh, word came to him of problems that persisted. He heard reports that troubled him, and he sent back uh, at least this letter, though he mentions a letter that came before it, and, and it seems to be a, somewhat of a pen pal exchange between him and the church in Corinth. And right off the bat, he dealt with the problem of divisions all the way in chapter 1. He dealt with divisions in the church. He dealt with uh, immorality in the church. And then he began to address a series of questions that he had received from them. And now in the third major section of the letter, which is where we find ourselves, Paul is dealing with several issues in worship. Today, as you may have guessed from our readings and from our hymns, we're dealing with the Lord's Supper. This is really the first of two sermons that ought to go together, covering chapter 11, verses 17 to the end in verse 34. He deals with a corporate problem uh, at the table, and then goes on to teach about what the table is really meant to be, and then uh, again in the end comes back to a corporate answer. We're going to look just at the first half, today verses 11, I'm sorry, 17 uh, through 26. Now I want to give you fair warning, folks. I normally try to stick very closely to one text and to dive in and to look at that, but we can't possibly think rightly about the table of the Lord without seeing some of the other areas uh, that this doctrine touches on. And so I'm going to reference a lot of other texts today. If you feel like you can't keep up, that's okay. Uh, just hold on. Let it wash over you. Uh, if you just have to get every jot and tittle of the sermon, uh, I'd be happy to share my notes with you later if you want to see where all of the tendrils reach into the rest of the scriptures. Uh, but for now, let's just read together. Uh, and before we read, come to the Lord in prayer that he will add a blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his holy word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God and Father, we thank you for this your word which you have given to us that speaks of your Son through the power of your Spirit dwelling in the hearts of your people. Thank you for the chosen men which you carried along by your Holy Spirit to write down these words, living and active to divide us as we come to hear from you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would cut us to the core. Help us to see if there is any wicked way that needs to be repented of, but help us to see much more the way that Jesus Christ covers every sin when we come to you in faith and repentance, that he covers every infirmity and every iniquity, that we can come to you in full assurance, and we can meet with you here in your word and dine with you at your table as a promise of the covenant that you draw your people into and the promise of the kingdom that is coming at the end of the age. Help us to see these things and to rejoice in you more and more, we pray in your name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. For those of you who don't consider yourselves animal lovers, it may come as a shock for you to find out how many pets you probably have living in your home. According to the California Academy of Sciences, most American homes, and it doesn't matter how often you vacuum, by the way, most American homes house at least 100 different species of organisms. And that includes big things, sometimes like bats or mice. It includes lots and lots of little things, from cockroaches and spiders on down to book lice and dust mites, and all sorts of things. And, and most of uh, these pests that infest our homes are relatively harmless. You know, some of them can uh, spread disease. Some of them just leave a trail of mess behind them. But there are others that, if they're given quarter in our homes, if they're allowed to infest, can cause incredible damage, spectacular damage. I'm thinking here specifically of termites. Those squishy, disgusting bugs that feed, not only live in your house, but feed on your house. And they eat the wood and digest it, and that's how they get their nutrition. And they can cause incredible damage. One estimate says that in the U.S. alone, every year, they cause an estimated $5 billion of damage repair costs. $5 billion from these little things. They're not very, very big. They're not very fast, but they have the unique ability to destroy a home from the inside out. That gives us a pretty clear picture as well of the way that sin works in the gathering of God's people. We all know that there's sin every time we get together. We all know that we track in our own traces of vermin every time we come in here. We know that all sin is destructive and messy to some degree. Thankfully, I think it is God's grace that we don't always see all of our vermin every time we're together. It's his kindness to us not to overwhelm us with our depravity while he works in us 
in sanctification. But there are some sins that if allowed quarter in the church, wreak havoc like few others. There's some sins that have the unique ability to destroy a church from the inside out. That's what we see in our passage today. Paul is pointing out just such a sin that not only lives in but feeds on the gathered church. That causes incredible damage. That leaves the church fractured rather than unified. That turns worship inward rather than upward. And leaves the church looking little different from the world around it. Today in our passage, we're going to uncover that sin. More importantly, we're going to learn about God's efforts to suffocate it. To put it to rest. And what he does to transform his people. Those are the two things we're going to find today. A dangerous sin in the life of the church. And God's transforming power. Let's consider that first one. A dangerous sin. The passage begins with this condemning charge. And I think aside from a church having completely left the gospel, becoming apostate, I don't know that there is any worse charge that could be leveled against the church. What does he say? When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine? People come and go in churches sometimes. They have all sorts of reasons for doing so. Sometimes the preaching is bad, too long-winded, or some other reason. Sometimes you want a different Bible study. You want to find more of your peers. Sometimes there are all sorts of reasons that people give for leaving a church. But could you imagine the person who leaves a church and says, the reason I had to get out is that every time I was there, it did more harm than it did good. It was not for the better, but it was for the worse. A tragic statement. One that Paul levels against the church in Corinth. Now, this statement that he makes is sort of a blanket statement. Paul sometimes starts with the end result, and then he traces backwards through the things that cause it, and that's what he does in this passage. It's easy to trace his thoughts, because we just need to look for this phrase that shows up several times, when you come together. What does he say in verse 17? When you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. Then again in verse 18. When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And then verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul seems to be connecting all three of these. He's tracing backwards to see what could cause such damage in a church that when they get together, they are divided and and fracturous and, and that the worship that they think they are giving isn't actually the worship Uh, that they ought to be giving. What could possibly be causing that? Well, the root cause, I think, shows up in verse 21. Why is it that you're, uh, you're gathering for the worse? Why are you divided? Why is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat together? Well, because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. What's the problem here, folks? What's the sin at the root of this? It's the sin of selfishness. It's a sin of some folks in the church using the church and even using the worship of the church to elevate themselves at the expense of others. To raise their own sense of self-importance and not looking out for those who have very little, not uh, being kind and generous. It's the sin of selfishness. And selfishness causes incredible damage in a church. 
Maybe it doesn't always show up at the Lord's table, not visibly. But some of you know the damage that shows up in churches where selfishness has taken root. What's the damage that happens in a church where selfishness has run amok? Well, there are a few that Paul points out. One is that selfishness tears at the fabric of God's people. That's what he says in verse 18. He says there are divisions. Paul has mentioned divisions in the church already in Corinth. Mentioned all the way back in in chapter 1. So maybe there seems to be this besetting sin of divisiveness in the church at Corinth. that, That people are pitted against one against another. Believer against believer. And they are divided. But there's a difference in the division that shows up here in chapter 11 from the division that came in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the division was about personality. And some said, you know, I follow Apollos. He's a really good speaker. Others said, no, 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 no. Paul is where it's at. No, come on. Peter, he's the guy. And it was about personality. Well, here it's about privilege. What are the divisions? Some have much and some don't have much. You gather together and you're divided over these petty things as to who can provide and who can eat and and who can come together based on the privilege that they have. The word that Paul uses here uh, for division is the word from which we get our word schism. You've heard that word. It's a word that describes a tear or a rift in something that ought to be unified and whole. It shows up, oddly enough, not that often in in Scripture in the New Testament, at least not as a noun, but it does show up uh, in the parable that Jesus told about the wineskins and the unshrunk cloths. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 9. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. That's the word, tear, schism. That's what a schism in the church feels like, doesn't it? Sometimes you can see it on the outside, but schism in the church, division in the church, whether it's about personalities or privilege, it always leaves us feeling torn and tattered, at odds with one another and broken as a people. That's the the hurt and the damage that happens because of selfishness in the church. Now, there is a word of comfort in the midst of this, isn't there? There's God's work even in these terrible things, even in the midst of of division. And God's work is that uh, the false brethren will be exposed. That's what happens. He says, uh, and it might seem a strange saying to us, uh, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Here's the way David Jackman puts it. He says, every congregation will be made up of true believers who follow in Jesus' footsteps and externalists who are merely along for the ride. These factions, these divisions, identify who are the false brethren. How are they identified? Same way they're always identified. By their fruits, you will know them. Are they divisive? Are they fractious? And so there is a word of comfort here, that God is doing something, even when Satan assaults the church, by schisms rent asunder is what we sing in the hymn, right? And even when Satan assaults the church, the Lord is at work to divide off those who are his from those who really aren't. There's that word of comfort, but the pain is still there. The schism still leaves God's people broken and fractured. Nursing wounds sometimes for a long time. I can't 
imagine to know the background of every person who's in the room today and, and hearing uh, this passage. Some of you know what it's like to come from a fractured background in a church. To know that hesitancy toward other believers, that, that sense of guardedness that you're not sure you want to get too close to other believers because you know how things work in the church, right? And there's a divisiveness, and there's damage, and it tears at the fabric of God's people. There's another damage that happens because of selfishness. I think it's a far worse damage. It is that selfishness denies the essence of true worship. That's what he says in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The problem was not that they had given up observing the Lord's Supper. It wasn't that they said, oh, that's not important, we're not going to do that. But the way that they observed the Lord's Supper was so wrong, so different, so, so out of league with what the Lord had given him to do that it flatly contradicted the whole purpose of the supper. And despite what they thought they were doing, despite the bread and the wine that was present, despite the words they may have said at the beginning, it wasn't actually the Lord's Supper that they were partaking in. And there is a, a contrast here, and I think... Uh, in the Greek, it comes out a little more clearly. He says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper, you're eating your own supper. You may be gathered all together in the same place, but you're doing your own thing, and you're, you're being selfish, and, and some are going hungry while others are getting drunk. And you're despising the church of God, you're humiliating the poor. Now, from the way that we come to the Lord's Supper, we think, how could that possibly happen? Even if we use fermented wine, nobody is going to get drunk on a tiny little sip uh, of what we give you. No one comes uh, being hungry or well-fed. That's not the point. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul is telling them. What does he say later? If you're hungry, don't you have a house in which you can eat? You're perverting the whole thing. You see, this is the way that it happened very often in the ancient church. They gathered together for uh, worship in the context of a communal meal, something like the fellowship meal that we'll have afterwards. And, and there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for recognizing that when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, it was at night and in the context of a communal meal. And so sometimes you'll even find Reformed churches that the only time they come to the Lord's Supper is at the evening service following a fellowship meal. And that's okay, that's good. But we can get so wrapped up in celebrating the external of the supper, that we miss the significance of the supper. And that's what happened uh, in Corinth. People would come together for a communal meal. And there was no fixed day off, and there was, uh, there was no fixed day off in the Roman Empire, rather, and so the Lord's Day might fall on uh, day one, or day seven, or day ten. They had a ten-day calendar in the Roman world. And there are some in the church who are well-to-do, who can show up at their own leisure and have control over their own schedules. There are others who are workers or slaves, and they can only come when they're let off. After they have been serving others all day, they can finally come, and they bring their little pittance to the communal meal, and those who are there early and have the good spots and bring the lavish food, well, what do they find? They find people sitting around who have already gotten into the wine and the food. 
And they move from feeling as though they're on the outside of their daily lives to feeling as though they're on the outside of the church life as well. They're the lower ranks. They're, they're just the servants. He says, you humiliate those who have nothing. You despise the church when you do this. And the supper that you eat is not the Lord's Supper. Instead, the, the worship they were giving and indulging in and engaging in was something that was self-serving rather than God-honoring. It had devolved into selfishness. And, and that, by the way, is always what human worship devolves into if we go aside from what the Lord has commanded. You can look at Romans 1 and see the story played out. How does it happen? Well, maybe to assuage our consciences because of our sin, we begin to suppress the truth of the righteous God with whom we don't actually want to deal. Pretty soon, suppression doesn't work, and so we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and then when it's all played out, you end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Worship will always devolve into something that is selfish and self-centered. Self-honoring rather than God-honoring. And that's what Paul says was happening in the church. There was a hypocrisy running rampant because of the selfishness of the people that said that no matter what you may think you're doing, you're not actually observing the Lord's Supper. And it denied the true essence of worship. Hypocrisy is a tough charge to level with, isn't it? July 4th, 1852, Frederick Douglass made a famous speech before the ladies' uh, abolition movement in New York. This is what Frederick Douglass said. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all the other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. You boast of your love of liberty, your superior civilization, and your pure Christianity, while the whole political power of the nation is solemnly pledged to support and perpetuate the enslavement of three millions of your countrymen. You can bare your bosom to the storm of British artillery to throw off a three-penny tax on tea and yet wring the last hard-earned farthing from the grasp of the black laborers of your country. You profess to believe that of one blood God made all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has commanded all men everywhere to love one another, yet you notoriously hate and glory in your hatred all men whose skins are not colored like your own. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism a sham. Your humanity is a base pretense and your Christianity as a lie. That's what hypocrisy does, doesn't it? You may think you're doing one thing when in actuality you are denying it, celebrating the 4th of July while millions are enslaved. Paul is saying something similar to the church. When selfishness grips the worship of the church, you may think you're worshiping the Lord, but only giving lip service to yourself. And the supper that you eat is not the Lord's supper. There is a dangerous warning here. That when selfishness grabs a church, it wreaks havoc from the inside out. What is to be done then? 
How do we address this? The selfishness that, that, if we're honest, so easily grabs each of our hearts. There's a strange thing that happens. I'm sure that most of you are not so boring that you spend your days reading commentators on the scriptures. I, however, get the privilege to do that. You pay me to do that. There's a strange thing that happens when you go from reading the older commentators to the newer commentators. And the strange thing that happens is that most newer commentators will go from this first paragraph in 17 uh, through 22, and they will jump to verses 33 and 34, and they will draw a straight line almost. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now, that is the correct application, is it not? But let's not forget all the theology that comes in between. If we are to say, well, selfishness has gripped the church, so we're going to be more selfless. That is simply worshiping ourselves and our own abilities. Once again, isn't it? We need something more than that. Selfishness isn't just a surface issue that we can patch up. Like an old dilapidated house, and you put new siding on it, and it looks pretty good, but inside the rafters are still sagging. Selfishness has a way of corkscrewing into our hearts, and you cannot simply yank it out from the surface, and so we need something that goes deeper than that. And that's what Paul points them to. He points them to the table. Now again, we could say, well, Paul, aren't you just dressing things up? No, 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 no. He doesn't want them to come to the table only in form, but in substance, to remember not just uh, the things that, that they would like to know about the table, but what it actually stands for. It's not there to fill your belly, but to nourish your soul. And there is provision at the table more than you could imagine. There is transformation at the table proclaimed in the death of Jesus Christ. That is what we find in the second paragraph here, that the Lord transforms his people through the table because the table proclaims a certain rhythm of repentance. We'll get to that rhythm of repentance idea in a little bit. But you need to know something about uh, the way that he points them to the table. There is something here in Paul's exposition of what happens at the Lord's table that cannot be reproduced simply by external measures. There's a certain cadence to this text that draws up the idea of remembrance. It's a repeated idea, isn't it? This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is my blood of the new covenant, or the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often as you do, in remembrance of me. There's a, a certain theme here. And you need to know that in the Bible, repent, remembrance, rather, uh, repentance as well, but remembrance is not some passive thing that God's people do. Remembrance is an idea and a word in the scriptures that is packed with dynamite. It is an action word. When we think of remembrance, I think of the Baptist church that I grew up in. And there were these beautiful stained glass windows that had been there for at least 100 years. And at the bottom of the windows, there were these little plaques in memory of, I still couldn't tell you the names that were on there. It didn't mean anything to me. You look at the windows and you say, that's beautiful, that's nice, and there's a plaque, and somebody paid for it, and somebody cared enough to do that, and uh, that's nice, and it's mostly a passive thing. Or we think of remembrance in the sense of nostalgia. You share the pictures of, of your uh, vacation, and oh, wouldn't it be nice to go back there? That's not what remembrance is in the scriptures. Remembrance is a word packed with dynamite. Remembrance in the Bible is the way that God deals graciously with his people. The first time the word remember shows up in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 8. It says this, God remembered Noah 
and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. What did God do? He remembered them. Well, when did God forget them? No, 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 no. He didn't forget them, but he did remember them. He remembered them by working faithfulness and righteousness upon those to whom he had given his promises. In the same way that he remembered his people in Egypt. Did he forget them? No, but he did remember them. In the same way that he remembered Hannah and gave her a son. This is what the Lord does. This is how he works faithfulness in the Bible. He remembers. It's also the way that he uh, calls us to obedience, by the way. The Lord meets his people at Mount Sinai, and he gives them the list of the Ten Commandments, and you come to that one dealing with the Lord's Day, and there are two verbs in that phrase. One is primary and one is secondary. The primary verb is remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How do you keep the Lord's Day holy? You remember it. You don't think back on a Thursday and say, oh, wow, Sundays are good. I wish we had more of those. That's not the remembrance that it's talking about there. There's a faithfulness in, in biblical remembrance. Perhaps more importantly for our passage here, remembrance is this regular rhythm. And I told you we'd get to it. Remembrance is the regular rhythm of God's people. Consider when the Lord gave his people uh, the Passover meal. It shows up in Exodus chapter 12, and, and Moses tells them what to do, and the blood on the doorpost and the lintels, and the Lord will deliver you. And that's how it happened the first night. But then in the next chapter, in chapter 13, Moses says to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, you shall keep this service in this month. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. What was remembrance for the people of God in the Old Testament? Is that regular rhythm of life every year, again the Passover, every year, again remembering what the Lord has done. So when we come to the table in the same way in remembrance, we don't come merely passively. We don't come just thinking good thoughts about a story of a Savior that we have heard. It requires of us that we come in full accord with all that he has done and all that he calls us to. The table is a remembrance of, uh, of our joining to him and to one another. And to come in remembrance means that we come recognizing one another and selflessly. Remembrance puts demands on God's people. You know, it's uh, in this passage, in the, this uh, section that we mentioned at the beginning from verses 17 through 34, it is really the next paragraph that gets all the attention in theological circles. Because people look at words like uh, examine yourself, discern the body. And we have these little in-house debates over what exactly does that mean? And does that mean that you must be a member in good standing of an evangelical church that professes the gospel and believes the Bible to come to the table? But if we understand what remembrance means, those, those questions are answered before we ever get past verse 26. Remembrance implies involvement. You cannot remember something that you are not a part of. This is the way that Calvin puts it. He says, The supper is a memorial which must always remain in the church until the last coming of Christ. It's been appointed for this purpose, that Christ may put us in mind of the benefit of his death. 
and that we may recognize it before men. If, therefore, you would celebrate the supper aright, a profession of your faith is required from you. He's commenting there on verse 26, not on the verses about examining and discerning. You see, it, re- it implies involvement, doesn't it? You come to the table actively remembering. Remembrance is an action word. Okay. So what do we remember at the table? A few things. I'll try to make these a little bit faster. We remember humility, we remember generosity, and we remember a promise. At the table, we remember the humility of Jesus' betrayal. Notice that juxtaposition in verse 23. The Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. What does it take for the Lord to be betrayed? Let those two words sink in there a little bit. The king of heaven and earth. The one to whom the cattle on a thousand hills belongs, and yet he allows himself to be sold for the price of a slave. What does it take? Perhaps you remember that children's catechism question. What is God? Well, God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. What does it take for the God who is spirit and does not have a body like men to enter into his creation in such a way that he should have hands that can be bound, that he should have cheeks that can be slapped, that he should have flesh that can be torn and pierced. What does it take for the Lord to be handed over and betrayed? It takes humility, doesn't it? It takes an incredible condescension that boggles our minds even to begin to think about it. That the Lord that knows the thoughts and the intentions of every heart, the Lord who knows the schemes that are spoken in the dark corners of quiet rooms where men gather together and plot, that he would allow the schemes of the betrayer to lead to his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and his death. It takes humility, doesn't it? That's what we remember at the table. That the Lord in humility allowed himself to be betrayed. That he stooped low. That Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking to himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does it take, and what do we remember at the table? In the face of our persistent selfishness, we remember the humility of the Lord who took on flesh. We also remember his generosity. It would be humbling enough, wouldn't it, to come to the table and just gaze on the symbols, just to look, just to stop there and say, yes, the Lord took on flesh, and here is a bit of bread, and here is a bit of wine to remind you that he had a body, and he had blood, and he had real flesh, and he took that to himself. It would be enough, it would be humbling enough to know that the Lord did that, but the table doesn't consist in gazing and looking. The table consists in participation. We do not come to the table to look, we come to eat and to drink. There is not only a body, there is a body that is broken. There is not only blood, there is blood that is poured out and spilt for his people. And we come and we participate. And that's what he says. Remember the blood of the new covenant, the body broken. That's interesting language, the blood of the new covenant. It ties together two passages in the Old Testament that inform what happens at the table. The first of those passages shows up in Exodus chapter 24. 
So God ratifies a covenant with his people. He is redeemed out of Egypt, now led to Sinai. And they're about to go into the land, and they're about to get uh, all sorts of laws to tell them the way that they ought to behave in the land. They're about to get all sorts of promises and woes. And if you prosper, if you, if you do well in the land, if you obey, you will prosper. And if you disobey, you will be driven out. The land will spew you forth. And in Exodus 24, the people gather to Moses. Moses reads the law and the stipulations and the covenant. And the people say to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And Moses replies by taking blood of a sacrifice. And some he throws against the altar. The rest he throws on the people. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you today in accordance with all these words. Is God's seal of authenticity for his people, both for them and against them. If you obey, you will prosper. If you disobey, you will be driven out. It was a witness for them and against them. It was a covenant that you know the rest of the story, ultimately they could not keep. It was a covenant that was worked with some planned obsolescence in it, wasn't there? That's what we found in Jeremiah 31. That's the second passage that these words tie together. Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant, not like the one that was ratified at Sinai that they took and they broke, even though I was their God. Not like that old covenant, but there's a new covenant coming, and you know what? This new covenant is better than the old one because it has a double blessing. It comes with righteousness and atonement. Isn't that the stipulation of Jeremiah's covenant that we read today? I will no longer write the law only on tablets of stone, but I'll write the righteousness of my law on the human heart. And I will forgive, I will remember their sins no more. The double blessing of the new covenant. Righteousness of the Lord and atonement for sins. Much better than merely wiping the slate clean so you can do the rest on your own. Where do we find a generousness like that? Where do we find a new covenant? like that, that double blessing of righteousness and atonement. We find it in Jesus, don't we? We find it in Him. And the Lord made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only sins forgiven, not only righteousness imputed, but both at the same time, the double exchange, the double blessing of the new covenant. What does it say in Hebrews 10? When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I come to do your will, O God. What did Jesus do in his body? He kept perfect and personal obedience. Absolute righteousness. And yet we come to the table not only to eat his body. Symbolically. Spiritually. What did the Lord do with his blood? Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. With his blood, he atoned for sin. Yet we don't come to the table only to drink. We come to eat and to drink, the double blessing of the new covenant. This is the generosity that we remember at the table. That the Lord provides all that his people need. And that generosity confronts us in our selfishness and our destructiveness. Lastly, though, the table... At the table, we remember the promise of Jesus' return. This is the rhythm he's given us, brothers and sisters. As often as you do it, 
We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is the rhythm and the song and the cadence that the church is meant to play forth until God himself interrupts the music. When his trumpet resounds and the Lord returns in glory and in justice, he comes in glory to gather all of his own to himself, those that trust in his perfect sacrifice and the generosity of his giving himself. He comes in justice to judge those who are satisfied with their own selfishness. And so before we come to the table, you need to ask yourself, do you come satisfied with your selfishness? Do you come trusting in what your hands have wrought and what you can bring to the table? Or do you come in remembrance? Remembering the one who provides for you. The one who joins all of his people, privileged and poor, into one body, one united body in himself. This table does not require your perfection. How could it? This table proclaims death that is given and a life that is offered to cleanse people from sin who have no soap to wash themselves. It could not require your perfection, but it does require your remembrance. This is the rhythm the Lord has given. It's the way that he transforms his people. The way that he drives out that corkscrew of selfishness. He calls us to remember his humility and his generosity and his coming again. Let's do that together. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for this promise, transforming grace, uh, that the cup that we bless is a participation with Christ, that the bread that we break is a participation with you. O oh Lord, we pray that as we come, weak and weary sinners all, empty-handed receivers, we pray that some will come in repentance. Pray that all will come remembering you. Pray that you would gather us to yourself and give us a promise of your coming again to gather us on the last day to eat and drink with you forever. Help us to be receivers of your grace through faith. We pray in your name. Amen.